Our scripture this evening comes from Genesis, the 33rd chapter. Uh, I will be reading the entire chapter, Genesis chapter 33. Pay attention now as uh, God speaks to you out of his word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my gift, my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built himself a house and made booths for for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkot. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padnaram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar, and he called it El Elohei Israel. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, your word comes to us as a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And we ask that you will enable us to see the way in which this word, this particular passage this night, will light our path and enable us to walk in ways that honor you. Help us, O Lord God in heaven, to see you and to see the wonder of what you have done in the midst of this passage, and then to live in accordance with what we learn from it. Work in us by your spirit. Guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. Now, the last time we looked at uh, uh, Jacob, uh, we talked about uh, the fact that uh, sometimes we can uh, be invited to a reunion, a family reunion or a class reunion, and there's somebody there that we really don't want to see, 
uh, and we joked a little bit about how you could dread uh, seeing that person who, by and large, when you were around them, made your life miserable. I would like for us to continue on with that idea this evening as we start looking at this text. And think you go to that reunion, and you have been thinking all for three weeks now about how you're going to face that person, and you get to the reunion, there are all these people there, and the first person that comes walking up to you is that person. And you sort of start to get, you know, the cold hands, the tension that comes into you, and the person comes up to you and says, I'm probably the last person you want to see coming up here to greet you. I was a real jerk. I treated you horribly. I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm sorry that I did that, and I hope that you will accept my apology. And you stand there, you know, a bit dumbfounded, befuddled. What's going on here? Then it sinks in. This person is not the same kind of person that you thought you had, uh, the, the same kind of person that you had uh, remembered, a very much different kind of person. And that's sort of the way in which we catch Jacob and Esau. Because Jacob now has to meet Esau. And as we've been looking at these passages, one of the things that has characterized them is, how is that meeting going to come about? And and the text begins to tell us how the reunion happens. I mean, in the very first verse of chapter 33, it tells us that uh, Jacob looked up, and what did he see? Esau and 400 men. Now, we've looked at these 400 men, and I make the judgment that these aren't 400 happy fellows just coming for a party. These are 400 fighting men. They're warriors. That's there. And so that's what Jacob looks up and he sees. And certainly when Jacob looked up there, he had to remember why he was coming home, why he had been gone for so long. Because the last interaction that Jacob had had uh, with, his, uh, with his brother was what? His brother had threatened to murder him. He was going to kill him uh, because of what Jacob had done in stealing the blessing. And so Jacob looks up and he sees his brother coming to him. And the text doesn't tell us, it, tell us this explicitly, but it does seem to point to the fact that Jacob probably has no clue what Esau is going to do next. He has his fears. Clearly, he has his fears. Uh, but that Jacob doesn't know what has happened. Jacob has no idea if sending and, uh, 550 head of livestock to, uh, uh, to Esau, you know, and little bits of it as it came to him, is going to somehow change this murderous brother into a brother that at least accepts him and doesn't turn 400 uh, military men loose on him. Uh, Jacob just doesn't know that. He has no way of knowing that at all. Uh, so what does Jacob do? Well, he's Jacob. Uh, he divides his family up, and uh, he divides his uh, family up in, a, in an interesting way. He, as we might say, he divides his family up in a Jacobian way. He takes the, 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 the servants, uh, uh, Zilpah and Billa, and, his, and their children, he puts them first. Then he brings Leah and her children. And then he brings uh, Joseph and uh, Rachel. 
And immediately we see, and we have already seen, and we will see again as we look at Jacob, that he has this persistent character of things, that he always shows his overwhelming favor to Joseph. Now, if we go on uh, and look at the life of the, of the children of, of Jacob, uh, we'll have a very clear idea why they behave in the way in which they do. You remember, uh, these uh, kids grow up, and what do they decide? Well, they decide at least let's kill Joseph. Well, maybe not kill him, at least let's sell him off into slavery. And so, so we see Jacob's uh, failings here, even as a, as, a, as a father, and the implications that these things have for them. Uh, but Jacob uh, gets out in front of them. This time, he's, he's the first one that goes. And, and Jacob comes up to his brother. He approaches him, I am assuming, at some distance. And the text tells us he bows down to him seven times. Uh, many people, and I think I agree with them, say that when he's bowing down, it's not just, you know, a little one like this. It's probably bowing so that he puts his head, his forehead, clear to the ground. And he does, this, he does this seven times as he approaches Esau. And, and what he's doing is he's following a pattern, a pattern that, that you can find records of in the ancient world of, of the way in which someone will approach uh, a, a king, some royal uh, personage. And that's what you do. You bow down seven times. And so we, we, I, I, in my mind, I got this picture you know, of Jacob coming along, a sort of haltingly stopping getting down, getting back up again, goes a little ways, down, back up again. You know, he's doing this seven times, and here comes Esau. And I don't see Esau just sort of slowly strolling up to his brother. He comes running up to his brother. Everybody in the family is holding their breath, and Esau throws his arms around Jacob. He kisses him on this cheek, then he kisses him on this cheek, and big tears are running down Esau's face as he greets uh, his long-lost brother. The brother has been away for so long. And, uh, uh, and, and these two brothers come together. I mean, Moses, as he writes this down, uh, portrays for us uh, uh, Esau in, in glowing terms. And some of you have already asked me this question as I've stood at the back. Why, why did Esau do that? Oh, why, why, what changed Esau? What, what happened? What was going on? Uh, one person says, you know, you read this text and Esau comes across a lot better, you know, than, uh, than Jacob does. And Jacob is supposed to be the, the hero. Um, I think first that Esau's behavior just fits in with what we know about Esau. You'll remember how all this, this, this uh, uh, bitterness between the brothers got started. Esau is out hunting. Now Esau goes out hunting from the, from the family uh, camp stand, where all the family is, where he has been living and eating for days and days and weeks and weeks and maybe even years and years. And he goes out hunting and he starts to come back from his hunting and there is Jacob with this pot of red stew and uh, uh, Esau wants some of that red stew, and the conniving Jacob says, you can't have any of this stew unless you sell me uh, uh, your birthright. And listen again to how Esau responds. He says, I am about to die. What use is a, what use is a birthright to me? And he's coming back to the camp where he has eaten meal after meal after meal. I mean, Jake, uh, Esau doesn't give me the impression that he's a very thoughtful person. He doesn't consider 
what he has to say or what he has to do. He's hungry, he wants something to eat, and he's not willing to, uh, to go through anything to get rid of that. And, and, and I think his mother knows that about him, because if you recall the way in which uh, his mother actually explains to him about going away, Rebecca's evaluation uh, uh, supports this. After Esau threatens to uh, murder Jacob, uh, she tells Jacob to go away for a while until Esau gets over it. And listen to what she says. It's recorded for us in chapter 27. Let me read to you verses 43 through 45. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done for him. Then I will send for you to bring you back here. Uh, his mother sees him. He's mad at you now. He's saying he's going to murder you, but he'll get over it. It'll just pass by. So I think one of the reasons, the things that we see with Esau is that that's just the kind of person he is. You know, on Monday, he's ready to kill his brother. On Wednesday, he's ready to throw his arms around them. And there are Esau's all around. Now, some of you may be Esau's in that way. And some of the rest of us know about people who are like that. And so I think that's one of the things we see with regard to Esau. I judge that another reason for Esau's behavior is the presence that Jacob sent to him, that Jacob sent all of these presents to him. And Jacob thought about what he was doing. This is a, this is a real big pile of money, if you have 550 head of livestock to send to him. And that Jacob was hoping that this would appease his brother and he would receive him and accept him. And we'll look a little bit more of this as we go along. But it does seem to me that all of that coming to Jacob, you know, or coming to Esau in, in stage after stage from Jacob also had, had some effect. And we'll look at that just a little bit more in a minute. But the third and the overarching reason why Esau is different is because of the work that Yahweh has done in, in Esau. Um, I remember when Jacob wrestled with God, uh, it got to be close to dawn, and uh, the, the, the angel of God says, let me go, let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And how does God respond to him? He says to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Such was God's blessing on, on Jacob. He, he'd striven with Laban, for example, and God had intervened. He told uh, Laban, don't you mess with Jacob. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, don't say anything good or say anything bad about him. And God, Yahweh, has entered into this as well and has been there. And we see Jacob's family as sort of follows along with the way in which uh, uh, Jacob uh, goes uh, to this. The uh, story unfolds, and, and Esau uh, looks up, I think, and he sees this, this group of people coming to them. And they're again coming like the uh, animals did, sort of in waves, you know. Uh, here come all of these uh, uh, children of, uh, um, of the slave ladies, and what do they do? They bow down to Esau, and Esau probably acknowledges that in some way, and he looks up again, and here comes some more, you know. Uh, and then he, they bow down to him, and then there comes some more. And so there is, there, all these people are coming to him, and Esau uh, raises, uh, raises the question 
you know, uh, who are all these people? Where, where did they all come from? Where, where did this troop of people uh, come from? And uh, Jacob attributes them uh, to God's grace. He attributes them to, uh, to the uh, goodness of God to him. And in the Old Testament, and in particular as we've looked through uh, Genesis, that, that one of God's great gifts to his people has been children. And so uh, Jacob is coming, and he's got now at least uh, 12, 11 sons and uh, uh, one daughter that's there with him, plus uh, whatever else was coming along with him. So it's a, quite a troop, and so Jacob acknowledges this. He, he's careful at this point, though, not to call these God's blessing, but he says they are evidence of God's grace. And my judgment is that Jacob self-consciously doesn't call them a blessing. And uh, my judgment is that just to say, well, I'm coming back to you filled up with great blessings may set off this mercurial Esau once again. And, uh, you know, maybe Jacob is just being sensitive to his brother's feelings and not saying, I'm entering back here in your presence, uh, showing off this great blessing that God has given to me. Or maybe by not calling them blessing, Jacob is being Jacob, uh, you know, a little manipulative. I'll let you decide uh, which Jacob is doing there. Uh, but we also see that not only is Esau uh, ask about the family, but Esau also asks about what's all this other stuff that's coming, you know, all these animals that have come to me and sweep after sweep of animals. Uh, what is all of this? Why is all of this here? And uh, some claim that uh, Esau's initial refusal just shows what a great guy that uh, Esau is. It's evidence of the goodness of Esau. I'm just not convinced, sorry, but I'm just not convinced. And when we look at the ancient world, there are ways in which one accepts gifts or buys things, and they're not like 21st century uh, people in the United States at all. Uh, I think he intended to take these gifts all along and that he's following uh, the patterns that were set out there. Uh, if you can remember very well, we remember something of this when, when Abraham bought a, a field so that he could bury Sarah. And you may recall that he is together with all of these, um, these Hittites, and uh, these Hittites tell him, you know, if you want to have a place to bury your wife, you pick out any place for it and we'll give it to you. And uh, Abraham, if you'll recall, he picks out the place uh, that Ephron has, one of the Hittites, and then Ephron says to him that nobody will withhold this from you. We would give this to you. I'd really love to give it to you. By the way, it costs. <laughs> and he gives the price of it in there. And Abraham understands. All the Hittites that are gathered there understand. Ephron understands. I don't really intend to give you this. I just say all these things because that's the way in which polite company goes. You're supposed to pay me that money. Abraham gets it. He pays him that money. And I judge that something of the same kind of a, a process is going on as Esau refuses the gift from Jacob. Um, uh, you notice that Jacob acknowledges that the gift uh, uh, did what he wanted it to do. I mean, he recognizes that uh, this gift is something that can soften uh, the heart of, of his brother. That's why when he sends all those people out, he says, uh, perhaps he will, he will accept me, he will receive me in that way. And so after all of this elaborate interaction, the text does tell us uh, uh, that uh, Esau does take it. So I do think that the, the gift had something to, uh, to do with it as well. 
Now, as this this story unfolds, we we run into some other strange kind of thing because Esau uh, expects that Jacob will go with him to Seir. Uh, and he, he, he talks to uh, uh, Jacob as just as if that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go together, you know. We're, we're brothers that are back together again, and so uh, we're going to live happily ever after in, uh, in the seer. Uh, there's, there's no reason in the text why Esau does this. It's just very clear that he expects about that. And we can uh, easily conclude that uh, Esau is ready to resume his relationship with his brother, Uh, he's not going to hold Jacob's uh, wrongdoings against him any longer. Uh, On the other hand, uh, Esau's invitation could be evidence that Esau likes what he saw coming up there with Jacob. All that wealth, you see, we at first think Esau is always the good guy, but we have seen evidence of the way in which in the ancient world, when somebody has lots of wealth, one of the things you want to do is to bring them along with you. Remember Abraham and Isaac and their interactions with Abimelech. Uh, We'll see the very same thing in the next chapter after the terrible things that happened to to Dinah, that that they all want to come together. So when when, when, uh, Esau is inviting uh, Jacob to Seir, it's my judgment that it's not all, you know, wonderful, lovely Esau. And, And there's a reason why I keep a sort of putting Esau down. Some of you may think that preacher is really unfair to him. He looks like a good guy to me. But you have to remember who Esau is throughout the rest of the Bible. Edom becomes what? A picture of the enemies of God. And so as we look at that development for the rest of it, we have to see that Moses has, as he writes this down, he wants us not just to see Esau as the good guy, but he also wants to see how the Edomites become the very enemies of God, even if you remember on the Exodus journey. Moses himself had to deal with the Edomites when he wanted to walk through their territory, if you'll remember that story. We won't go into it now. Uh, uh, as I look at Esau, I, I'm, I'm comfortable suggesting that, that Esau wants to be with his brother and that uh, he wants all those uh, cows and sheep and goats and camels as well. Um, oftentimes, our motives are not nice and clear and pure and easy for us to isolate, and I think that uh, at least these two things are going on with Esau, as he uh, is so magnanimous uh, toward uh, Jacob. Uh, but I think the interesting thing in this story is the way in which Jacob responds. You see, uh, First, Jacob begs off accompanying Esau, and he gives this sensible reason. He says, i got little kids here. I've got young goats and young calves, and and I have a young uh, uh, sheep here. And if I drive them really hard, they'll die. And that's a a reasonable excuse. You have to slow down so that uh, uh, little calves can uh, uh, suckle. And you can't do that if you're driving them very hard. And so they could die. And that seems to me to be a very reasonable excuse for that. And uh, uh, Jacob then refuses even uh, Esau's offer had to leave some of these 400 men with him as kind of protection. And Jacob says, there's really no need for that. But the strange thing in the text is what Jacob says to Esau. 
He says to him in verse 14, he says, until I come to my Lord in Seir. If you read those words, you can't come with any conclusion other than that Jacob is telling Esau, I'm coming to go with you to Seir. I'll get there sometime. Just let me take it easy with the the animals and the children and everything that I have. It doesn't seem to me that that you can draw any other conclusion from that. And there are many commentators who who will argue that at this point, Jacob really intended at some time to arrive in Seir. I don't. I take it that Jacob is being Jacob, and he simply deceives his brother. Uh, He has no intention whatsoever of going to Seir at all. Uh, As a matter of fact, Jacob is obeying God, and as he obeys God, as he obeys Yahweh, as he does what Yahweh had told him to do, he came to him when he was in Paddan Aram, and he told Jacob, you go back home and I will be with you. And Jacob is going back home, and while he's going back home and he's obeying God in that way, he's just lying. He's just lying in the midst of that. And when I look at this part about Jacob, it just sort of jumps out at me that uh, uh, he, 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 was, he was, uh, heard the promise that he had gotten in chapter 28 uh, when he was at Bethel. It was reiterated uh, when he was in Paddan Aram. And now uh, Esau says, let's go to Seir. And Jacob says, yeah, I'll see you later at Seir. Now, the interesting thing is that that when Jacob does go, we aren't sure exactly where Sukkot is, but uh, the guessing of where Sukkot is is that Seir is down this way and Sukkot is in the opposite direction. So after Jacob tells his brother that he will see him in Seir, he goes in the very opposite direction of where he was. And Jacob goes to this place, we're not sure where it is, called Sukkot. And the reason why it's called Sukkot is because that's the uh, uh, Hebrew word that has to do with shelters. And the text actually tells us that, that Jacob built some shelters there and he actually built himself a house. Uh, we could go over this very quickly, but it does seem that Jacob must have spent some time there. Uh, if uh, we figure out the age of his children on the basis of his time uh, leaving Padnaram, then some of his children are, are pretty young. I mean, you know, six, seven years old. And that's likely to be the age of Dinah. And when we get to the next chapter, we'll find that Dinah is a young lady. So sometime he had to spend for his children to grow up and to, uh, for his sons to grow up to be ready to be some kind of warriors. So, so he spent some time in Sukkot. That's where, that's where he was. But I think the point of the story is, uh, is to keep pushing us forward as Jacob responds uh, to God's command to him to return to Canaan. So he goes from Sukkot, he goes on then uh, into Canaan and he arrives at uh, Shechem. And Shechem is, is, is an important place because not only is Shechem important for, uh, for Jacob because he comes to this place, uh, but this is also the first place that Abraham came to when he entered into Canaan. So we see the, the pattern repeating of Abraham now again with Jacob. And, and it's interesting also that Jacob comes back and he comes back to the place in which he had, to the place in which God had made that promise to him, that I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be yours. It's the same promise that he had made to Abraham. It's the same promise that he had made to Isaac. Uh, Yahweh had said to all three of those patriarchs, 
This is your inheritance. Now, what does Jacob do when he gets to Sechem? He buys a plot of land so he can pitch his tent. And again, we, we wonder, what's going on here? I mean, if I get an inheritance, I don't expect somebody to charge me for it. You know, it's, it's the opposite of that. And what's going on? And I do take this as another evidence, just like we did when we looked at Abraham buying some property there. But this is the confidence that the patriarchs have that this property, this land, is going to one day belong to their, uh, to their offspring, to their progeny. And so this is a statement, a testimony, if you will, on the part of Jacob uh, that uh, he's in the promised land and this is going to be his, it's going to belong to his offspring. And even if he he has to buy a part of it. He's trusting that this is going to be something that God gives to his, uh, to his offspring. And when Jacob gets to, uh, to this place, uh, he, he calls it El Elohe Israel. Uh, and I think Jacob is trying to say two things here as he names this. One is, uh, this is uh, that, that uh, El Elohe Israel uh, really means God, the God of Israel. And it does seem to me there's, there's a double meaning here. Part of that is it's Jacob's confession. The place that I'm now living is the place where God, the God of Israel, me, Jacob, with my name changed, but it's also going to be, the God, he's going to be the God, the God of my progeny who are going to have all of this land, all of my offspring. So I think there's that, that added part there. Now, we've been looking at that strange things in this text, and you may be sat, sitting back there asking yourself once again, I know it's in the Bible. I know it's an interesting story. I know it has all these fascinating parts to it as I look at it and all the things, the twists and turns of it, but, but what's the relevance of all of this if you live in Hatboro in the 21st century? Is it just interesting ancient literature? Is that all there is to it? I don't think so. I think we've seen repeatedly in the life of Jacob that God exercises his sovereign providential guidance over all that occurs. Yahweh instructed Jacob to go back to Canaan, uh, and that entailed meeting his brother Esau. And God oversees all of this. And so instead of it coming to a war between these two, instead of uh, Esau carrying out his uh, threat to murder his brother, they, they, they are bosom buddies again. They're hugging one another, they're kissing one another, and tears are in their eyes. I mean, that's the picture that we get. Uh, Jacob prayed that God would honor his promises, and he actually reminded Yahweh that he promised to do him good. And that's exactly what Yahweh did here. He brought reconciliation reconciliation between these uh, two brothers. And uh, um, uh, what we see in this incident is the way in which God orders the lives of his people uh, to the ends that he has ordered them. And some of those providential happenings are filled with uh, tension. They're there. But as we see Jacob unfolding these things, we, we see Jacob not only it's God overseeing and carrying all these things out, but look at the way in which Jacob is behaving in the midst of all of this. God is fulfilling his promises. He's making sure that, that Jacob gets back to the land that he promised. He's coming back here with all these kids and all this stuff uh, that, that God has promised to him, that he was going to have a, 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 a progeny, a offspring, like the dust of the earth. It was going to be that, that great. God is working all this out. And what do we see Jacob doing? 
Well, we see him, first of all, messing up his family. I mean, this, this persistent preference for Joseph is just galling the other uh, members of the family. As I said, they, they eventually all get together and they say, let's kill the kid. Let's kill this 17-year-old. And if it wasn't uh, for Reuben, they would have killed him. But their nice alternative is what? To sell him off as a slave to Egypt. And so as we see Jacob uh, uh, following the promises of God, uh, we see him uh, uh, disobeying and doing all of these things. And yet God's providence, God's outworking works. Joseph himself makes that very clear. You get to the very end of the book of Genesis, and after Jacob dies and Joseph's uh, uh, brothers have to deal with them, and, they, and they're frightened of having to deal with them. Some of you will remember what Joseph says to them in, in verse 20 of chapter 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We see uh, Yahweh at work in Jacob, and we need to remember that Jacob is changed, but, uh, but Jacob is not perfect. And I've mentioned this before. When I read about Jacob, I, I somehow am comforted. I'm comforted. Why am I comforted by this scoundrel? Because when I see this scoundrel that God is caring for and God is overseeing and God is working out all these things. I see this guy sinning and I see me. I can stand before you and I have all the confidence in the world that when Jesus Christ hung upon Calvary's cross, one of the reasons why he was hanging on that cross was to take my sins away from me. And I trust that. The Spirit of God has worked in me, opened my eyes that I could see that, and the Spirit of God has worked in my heart, and he has, he has convinced me, he has confirmed that over and over again, that I belong to Jesus, that I'm God's person. And yet, I sin. One of the most frustrating parts of my life is, is the agonizingly slow process of sanctification of dying to sin and living to righteousness. And I look at Jacob, whose name eventually becomes Israel, the people of God. And I find comfort in that. I find comfort in the way in which uh, God deals with Jacob, that his providence that's at work there, and God does not abandon his work of working out his plan for people's life just because we fail to obey him. He continues to work in us. He continues that. And so when I look at Jacob, and I look at Jacob with all of his foibles, I don't celebrate his foibles, neither do I celebrate my own foibles, but I am comforted by the fact that the God that I serve and the God that Jacob serves is a God of overwhelming, overwhelming grace. And when I sin, he doesn't abandon me. He rebukes me. He may bring difficulties into my life, but he doesn't abandon me. That's, that's the God of Jacob. That is the God of Israel. That is El Elohe, Israel. I think the other thing is that Jacob really does show us what it means to trust the promises of God. God said, Jacob, this land is going to be your land. And Jacob was so sure that that was going to be his land, 
he went ahead and he bought a place where he could pitch his tent. And I, I, I can assure those of you who look forward to, to getting to the New Testament uh, a picture uh, of, of what, the Old Testament, what the Old Testament pictured for us in the promised land. The promised land is the Old Testament's picture of what, what heaven will be. It's the place of God's blessing, of God's uh, special care for us. And I can assure all of you who trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior that you will get to the promised land of heaven. You may stumble, you may have your doubts, but remember what we call that land, Israel. It's the place of God's blessing upon his people. And as you falter, remember Jacob who became Israel. He wrestled with God. Jacob knew he was a wrongdoer. Jacob knew about his folly. Jacob knew about his failures, but he hung on to God. And he says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. It's a prayer we've got to have. I won't let you go unless you deliver me from these sins that seemed every once in a while get me into bondage. I won't let you go. I will pray to you. I will, I will plead with you that you will deliver me from those things that are in me that come out in the most horrible and ugly and awful kinds of ways. That's what I see when I look at Jacob, and I think that's what we find in this story. And the amazing thing about Jacob is, with all the problems that he had, all the foibles that come to him, all the sins that are so very clear in his life, one of the things that we keep seeing about Jacob is that he does trust God. Doesn't trust him enough not to use his own Jacobean kinds of manipulations that characterize all of his life. But he does trust God. And he trusts God enough that when he gets to the place that God has promised him, he builds an altar just like his grandfather did. He worships. He worships God. And I ask those of you who are sitting here tonight engaged in worship, is that the God you're worshiping? The God who never abandoned you? The God who always works in you? The God who looks at you and sees you in your failings, in your sin, in your rebellion, and continues to be your God? Is that the God of grace that you're worshiping tonight? Is that the God that you will go home to, and I hope you will wrestle with him, and you will hang on to him, and say, I won't let you go till you bless me, till you deliver me, that I might come to find the joy of the things that are in the promised land, the promised land of heaven. The reunion is over, and it's certainly better than Jacob ever expected. But Jacob continued on, and he knew where he belonged. And I've already testified to you, I believe that God is going to bring me into his heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so I ask any of you who don't have that same confidence, are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you putting your faith in him so that you can have that hope of heaven? Because that's the way in which the promised land of heaven comes to us. And if you're sure, if you're sure that one day you will stand before that 
glorified Christ in your perfected body with your cleansed conscience, with your absolute, complete freedom from sin. And you will enter into that heaven where Jesus is. And he says, I've already prepared a room for you. And she'll say, just like Jacob did, God, my God. Let's pray. You are so good, O Lord. We can't fathom the depths of your goodness, of your mercy and your grace, of the way in which you love us. And yet we acknowledge to you this night that because of your love for us in Jesus, because of your work in us by the power of your spirit, that we can confess to you that we belong to you. And we long, O Lord God in heaven, for the day that we can enter into the presence of that heaven that you have prepared for us, free of sin, free to confess you openly and freely as our God, as our redeeming God. For Jesus' sake, O Lord, help us to grasp that and to love that and to long for the opportunity to enter in to your very presence in heaven itself. Do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. And all God's people say, amen. Let's turn now and sing, Oh, praise the Lord, for he is good. Let's rise as we sing.